audio tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the blasted heat, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. Welcome, Floor of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the great old ones. Johnny Reed's Cat Yes, cats are queer folk, sure enough, and often know more than a simple beast ought to by knowledge that's rightly come by. There's that cat there you've been looking at, will stand at a door on its hind legs with its front paws on the handle, trying like a Christian to open the door and mewling in a manner that's almost like talking. He's a London cat, he is, being brought me by a cousin who lives there, and is called Gilpin after, I'm told, a mayor who was christened the same. He's a knowing cat, sure enough, but it's not the London cats that are cleverer than the country ones. Who knows, he may be a relative of Johnny Reed's own tomcat himself. And who was Johnny Reed, and what was there remarkable about his cat? Have you never heard tell of Johnny Reed's cat? It's an old tale they have in the North Country, and it's true enough, though folk may not believe it in these days, when the Bible's not gospel enough for some of them. I've heard my father often tell the story, and he came from Newcastle Way, which is the very part where Johnny Reed used to live, being a parish sexton in a village not far away. Well, Johnny Reed was the sexton, as I've already said, and he and his wife kept a cat, a well-enough-behaved creature, sure enough, and a beast as he had no fault to set on, saving a few of the tricks which all cats play at times, and which seem born in the blood of the creatures. It was all black except one white paw, and seemed as honest and decent a beast as could be, and Tom would as soon have suspected it of being any more than it really seemed to be as he would one of his own children themselves, like many other folk perhaps who, maybe, have cats of the same kind little thinking it. Well, the cat had been with him some years when a strange thing occurred. 
One night, Johnny was going home late from the churchyard, where he had been digging a grave for a person who had died on a sudden, throwing the grave on Johnny's hands unexpectedly, so that he had to stop working at it by the light of a lantern to have it ready for the next day's burying. Well, having finished his work and having put his tools in the shed in a corner of the yard and having locked them up safe, he began to walk home pretty brisk, thinking would his wife be up and have a bit of fire for him, for the night was cold, a keen wind blowing over the fields. He hadn't gone far before he comes to a gate at the roadside, and there seemed to be a strange shadow about it, in which Johnny saw, as it might be, a lot of little gleaming fires dancing about, while some stood steady, just like flashes of light from little windows in buildings all on fire inside. Says Johnny to himself, for he was not a man to be easily frightened, being accustomed by his calling to face things which might upset other folk. Hello, what's here? Here's a thing I've never saw before. And with that, he walks straight up to the gate, while the shadow got deeper and the fires brighter the nearer he came to it. Well, when he came right up to the gate, he finds that the shadow was just none at all but nine black cats, some sitting and some dancing about, and the lights were the flashes from their eyes. When he came nearer, he thought to scare them off, and he calls out, Shh, 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 but never a cat stirs for all of it. I'll soon scatter you, you ugly varmin, says Johnny, looking about him for a stone, which was not to be found, the night being dark and preventing him seeing one. Just then he hears a voice calling, Johnny Reed. Hello, says he. Who's that wants me? Johnny Reed, says the voice again. Well, says Johnny, I'm here. And looking round and seeing no one, for no one was about tis true. Was it one of you, says he, joking-like to the cats, as was calling me? Yes, of course, answers one of them, as plain as ever Christian spoke. It's me as has called you these three times. Well, with that, you may be sure, Johnny begins to feel curious, for twas the first time he had ever been spoken to by a cat, and he didn't know what it might lead to exactly. So he takes off his hat to the cat, thinking that it was perhaps best to show it respect, and, seeing that he was unable to guess with whom he was dealing, hoping to come off all the better for a little civility. Well, sir, says he, what can I do for you? It's not much as I want with you, says the cat, but it's better it'll be with you if you do what I tell you. Tell Dan Radcliffe that Peggy Poison's dead. I will, sir, says Johnny, wondering at the same time how he was to do it, for who Dan Radcliffe was, he knew no more than the dead. Well, with that, all the cats vanished, and Johnny, running the rest of the way home, rushes into his house, smoking hot from the fright and the distance he had to go over. Nan, says he to his wife, the first words he spoke. Who's Dan Radcliffe? Dan Radcliffe, says she. I'd never heard of him, and don't know there's anyone such living about here. 
No more do I, says he, but I must find him wherever he is. Then he tells his wife all about how he had met the cats and how they had stopped him and given him the message. Well, his cat sits there in front of the fire, looking as snug and comfortable as a cat could be, and nearly half asleep. But when Johnny comes to telling his wife the message the cats had given him, then it jumped up on its feet and looks at Johnny and says, What? Is Peggy Poison dead? Then it's no time for me to be here. And with that, it springs through the door and vanishes, nor was ever seen again from that day to this. And did the sexton ever find Dan Radcliffe, I asked? Never. He searched high and low for him about, but no one could tell him of such a person, though Johnny looked long enough, thinking it might be the worse for him if he didn't do his best to please the cats. At last, however, he gave the matter up. Then what was the meaning of the cat's message? It's hard to tell, but many folk thought, and I'm inclined to agree with them, that Dan Radcliffe was Johnny's own cat, and no one else, looking at the way he acted, and no other of the name being known. Who Peggy Poison was, no one could tell, but likely enough it was some relative of the cat, or maybe someone it was interested in, for it's little we know concerning the creatures and their ways, and with whom and what they're mixed up. Lame Molly Two Devonshire serving maids declared, as an excuse perhaps for spending more money than they ought upon finery, that the pixies were very kind to them, and would often drop silver for their pleasure into a bucket of fair water, which they placed for the accommodation of those little beings every night in the chimney corner before they went to bed. Once, however, it was forgotten, and the pixies, finding themselves disappointed by an empty bucket, whisked upstairs to the maid's bedroom, popped through the keyhole, and began in a very audible tone to exclaim against the laziness and neglect of the damsels. One of them, who lay awake and heard all this, jogged her fellow servant and proposed getting up immediately to repair the fault of omission. But the lazy girl, who liked not being disturbed out of a comfortable nap, pettishly declared that for her part she would not stir out of bed to please all the pixies in Devonshire. The good-humored damsel, however, got up, filled the bucket, and was rewarded by a handful of silver pennies found in it the next morning. But ere that time had arrived, what was her alarm, as she crept towards the bed, to hear all the elves in high and stern debate, consulting as to what punishment should be inflicted on the lazy lass who would not stir for their pleasure. Some proposed pinches, nips, and bobs, others to spoil her new cherry-colored bonnet and ribbons. One talked of sending her the toothache, another of giving her a red nose, but this last was voted too severe and vindictive a punishment for a pretty young woman. So, tempering mercy with justice, the pixies were kind enough to let her off with a lame leg, which was so to continue only for seven years, and was alone to be cured by a certain herb growing on Dartmoor. 
whose long and learned and very difficult name the elfin judge pronounced in a high and audible voice. It was a name of seven syllables, seven being also the number of years decreed for the chastisement. The good-natured maid, wishing to save her fellow damsel so long a suffering, tried with might and main to bear in mind the name of this potent herb. She said it over and over again, tied a knot in her garter at every syllable in order to assist her memory, and thought she had the word as sure as her own name, and very possibly felt much more anxious about retaining the one than the other. At length she dropped asleep and did not wake till the morning. Now whether her head might be like a sieve that lets out as fast as it takes in, or whether the over-exertion to remember caused her to forget cannot be determined, but certain it is when she opened her eyes she knew nothing at all about the matter, excepting that Molly was to go lame on her right leg for seven long years unless an herb with a strange name could be got to cure her and lame she went for nearly the whole of that period. At length it was about the end of the time a merry squint-eyed queer-looking boy started up one fine summer day, just as she went to pluck a mushroom, and came tumbling head over heels towards her. He insisted on striking her leg with a plant, which he held in his hand. From that moment she got well, and lame Molly, as a reward for her patience and suffering, became the best dancer in the whole town at the celebrated festivities of May Day on the Green. The Brown Man of the Moors In the year before the Great Rebellion, two young men from Newcastle were sporting on the high moors above Elston and after pursuing their game several hours, sat down to dine in a green glen near one of the mountain streams. After their repast, the younger lad ran to the brook for water, and after stooping to drink was surprised, on lifting his head again, by the appearance of a brown dwarf who stood on a crag covered with brackens across the burn. This extraordinary personage did not appear to be above half the stature of a common man, but was uncommonly stout and broad-built, having the appearance of vast strength. His dress was entirely brown, the colour of the brackens, and his head covered with frizzled red hair. His countenance was expressive of the most savage ferocity, and his eyes glared like those of a bull. It seemed he addressed the young man, first threatening him with his vengeance for having trespassed on his demesnes, and asked him if he knew in whose presence he stood. The youth replied that he supposed him to be the lord of the moors, that he defended through ignorance, and offered to bring him the game he'd killed. The dwarf was a little mollified by this submission, but remarked that nothing could be more offensive to him than such an offer, and he considered the wild animals his subjects, and he never failed to avenge their destruction. He condescended further to inform the young man that he was, like himself, mortal, though of years far exceeding the lot of common humanity, and he hoped for salvation. He never, he added, fed on anything that had life, but lived in the summer on wattleberries, and in winter on nuts and apples of which he had a great store in the woods. Finally, he invited his new acquaintance to accompany him home and partake his hospitality, an offer which the youth, on the point of accepting, was just going to spring across the brook, which if he had done, the dwarf would certainly have torn him to pieces. 
when his foot was arrested by the voice of his companion, who thought he'd tarried long. On his looking round again, the wee brown man was fled. The story adds that the young man was imprudent enough to slight the admonition and to sport over the moors on his way homewards, but soon after his return he fell into a lingering disorder and died within a year. End of section 18